Good morning, church. Hey, can I just give a shout out to our worship team? Just to... Just for blessing us. You know, I'm going to be honest. Um, you give, if you guys haven't noticed, I'm a guy. You know, so Sethi drops it down for us guys a little bit on that. But I, my, my journey with worship has definitely been a journey. You know, before I was a believer, I think I had maybe two emotions that I could recognize. Like anger and hunger, I think, were the... <laughs> is hunger an emotion? I think it is, isn't it? For us guys, yeah, we count it. Um, and worship has taught me, this is, and this is some bad teaching, I think, that's crept into the church. Maybe the Western church. I won't speak for churches everywhere because when I was in a Hispanic culture uh, context for 15 years, they, they had a much easier time expressing their emotions. And I saw some expressions within worship that were so foreign to me. And after thinking about them, I thought, wow, that's exactly how we should be expressing emotions in this setting. And we have this thing in, in our Western culture that you gotta be strong when you're at a funeral or you're at a setting, like you just, you know, you're stoic, man. We pull up our bootstraps and we just push through it. And I had some of that in my upbringing. And when I became a believer, God started exploding some of these different emotions in my life. And I think, well, here, here's, this is my message, but you're getting this for free. It's not gonna cost you anything. But worship, I think, and when I mean worship, I mean the, the singing aspect of worship, all of our lives are worship. But when we express in song, God designed song and music for all cultures to tap into that emotional aspect that he created in us. And so I think that time of singing, and I'm speaking to you guys a lot, because I think we're on that journey maybe more so. I think women in general, I'm speaking in general terms, are, are do better with emotional things. They have a better concept or a grasp of that stuff. Can I get an amen from that? Yeah. Um, but worship is a place for you to train your emotions, if that makes sense. We've been taught, a lot of us, that, hey, emotions are bad. Don't base your you know, decisions on emotions. And that's true. You shouldn't base your decisions on emotions. Emotions are a reaction to what you think and what you believe. And if you can't express an emotion to the very being that created you and gave you all, then there's, that's broken in you. Just acknowledge it. It's okay. I was the same way. I struggled for years expressing myself and that I'm just, I just want to challenge you. This is a time not to base your life on your emotions, but to train your emotions to follow and be consistent with what you believe and what you know about God. Because here's one thing I'll say. The moment Jesus comes fully into our presence, guaranteed, we will be down on our faces so fast in absolute awe. You'll have feelings and emotions that just come out of you in ways you have no idea what's going to manifest. And I'm not saying that in a negative way. I'm saying that in recognizing the most significant person that's ever walked this earth. And I think whatever window of time we have left on our, our earth, here, here's one of my small little assignments for myself. I want that to not be as big a gap as it is right now for my life. So I just challenge you. I, I, and I say this because I love seeing the men 
sing and watching you and hearing you guys sing. When you sing, when you worship, you lead your family and you lead your culture and you lead your city and you show this city what we should be cheering for. We build these temples of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people to watch, you know, 24 guys or 22, four, whatever it is, 22 guys run around in a field and we go nuts as guys off and watching that kind of stuff. And then we come in here and we can't get excited about the God of this universe at times. So I, I just appreciate that. Seth, I appreciate your team. Uh, I appreciate you being thoughtful in that and challenging us and, and getting us to express ourselves to the one whom, whom we should be expressing every one of our emotions today. And we're going to see that even today as we get a glimpse in our message. I'm, I'm, let me just back up a little bit, okay? Hey, let me say hi to everyone today. We got people, you know, we have people in three different locations today. We have some that are present here. Yep. And if I were to just, I want to do this. Could you make it like, if I could walk out of the screen, I could go right into the, the courtyard and there'd be a group of you guys out there. So excited to have you out there. I'm actually a little jealous. It's way nicer out there than it is in here in terms of aesthetics, those trees and just it's a beautiful day out. So you guys, I think, have the, the best venue out there. And then we have our people at home online that are worshiping with us as well. We're so glad you're here this morning. Uh, there is a real message coming, so hang on there. Um, if you're new with us, my name is Chad McCartney. I'm the pastor of discipleship. So I have the privilege of opening God's word uh, with you this morning, which is a huge delight and a huge privilege. And if you don't know about who we are as a church, one of our values, our, our, our big purpose is we want to be simply about Jesus. And then with that, what we always want to focus on is helping people meet Jesus, helping them come to know Jesus, and then helping people follow Jesus. And so those are those different aspects of the journey that we're talking about. And if you're new, man, there couldn't be a better time for you to hear that truth in the series that we're in right now in the Gospel of Luke. If you're new to the Bible, the Gospels are the records of Jesus' life. It was four different people that witnessed and recorded these things and researched them and wrote them down. And Luke in particular was kind of the most historical of them in a sense. He was a historian. He was a doctor himself, very technical in his writings. But he was writing it specifically for a man named Theophilus who was not a Jewish person. He was basically outside the, the typical faith. So he's writing for people like us, most of us who aren't part of the Jewish nation and maybe didn't grow up with those understandings. And so that's what we're seeing. And up to this point, the first four chapters, we've seen this person of Jesus. He's been describing his birth. It was a supernatural birth and a human, the natural birth kind of combined, a uniqueness. There was predictions about him for hundreds and hundreds of years that this person Jesus was going to be coming. It tells us a little bit about who this God is because of who he was accessible to. He wasn't born in pomp and circumstance. He was born in a stable. It was shepherds that came to see him. The poor and the weak had access to him just as much as the rich and the powerful. And today we're going to turn a corner. So we've seen this introduction where he's telling Theophilus, this is this person. This is what's been laid, the groundwork that's been laid for him. But today he's now into his ministry. And we're going to see some of the first acts of his ministry that he performs in Luke's account in chapter 4 here. So if you have your Bible, open it up to Luke chapter 4. We're going to start in verse 31, and we're going to run through the rest of this chapter. And here's three things that Luke is trying to share with us today uh, from this passage. 
three things that, that just pop out. Like, this isn't rocket science. I'm a little bit embarrassed that you guys, you know, support me and pay for me to come and do this because I'm just basically telling you what's right there in front of you. I just gave the secret away, okay? Three things. This is what I do. I, I was just telling someone between services, I get paid to, to plagiarize every single Sunday. I, I'm just stealing stuff right out of the Bible, and people go, wow, man, that was profound. Yeah, you're right. It was Jesus. And that's exactly what we see. So three things. First is Jesus' authority, the authority of Jesus. You're going to see that come out in this passage. Luke is going to start to reveal that. The second thing you're going to see is the power of Jesus. So not just his person, you're going to see his authority, you're going to see his power, and then the last thing that this passage is going to reveal, because this passage really kind of summarizes his ministry in many ways in Capernaum, is you're going to see the purpose of Jesus. Okay, so his authority, his power, and his purpose. Let's pray, and then we're going to read, and it's going to walk right through this passage and watch these things reveal themselves. Father God, uh, we are, we're blessed to be in your presence as your church, and as your spirit embodies the church, um, you are, that's, that's you. We're the body of Christ, we're called, with the spirit of the living God and dwelling here with us. So, spirit, we're asking you to speak to our hearts. The words of man, people don't need to hear me speak, Lord. They need to hear from you. And that's the blessing of being able to open your word every week. And we're going to see it. We're going to see the first people that watched and witnessed this happen and what it was like for them and how it reveals who you are. So Lord, keep doing what you and you alone can do and speak to our hearts as your church. Speak to hearts who maybe don't know you yet and reveal yourself to them just as you have to us and just as you have to these whom we will read about today and you've been doing for thousands of years. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Luke chapter 4, 31. Let's look at Jesus' authority when he starts off. It says, Then he went down to Capernaum, a town in Galilee, and was teaching them on the Sabbath. Let me just explain this, because if you know geography in Israel, uh, you know that Capernaum is actually north, or technically northwest of Nazareth. Jesus was in Nazareth last week, if you remember, uh, and they didn't accept him. Remember, that's his hometown. He taught, they were amazed, and then they wanted to throw him off a cliff, and he decided to go somewhere else to, to teach, which I thought, hey, that's pretty wise. Like, if you guys try to throw me off, like, Mount Bonnell today after this message, I'm probably going to find a different place to go preach as well. Yeah, the first service didn't laugh that much at that one either, but that, that's actually funny. You guys just don't have that great a sense of humor. I know, can you hear them? Can you hear them outside? They're busting up out there. Totally, yeah. So Capernaum, if you know geographically, uh, Nazareth is at a higher altitude. It's a little more mountainous, like 1,300 feet is about where Nazareth was. And Capernaum, which is right on the edge of the Dead Sea, and the Dead Sea, if you know, is below sea level, several hundred feet below sea level. So Jesus did actually go down. He didn't go south. He went down from Nazareth, down in about 2,000 feet of elevation to Capernaum, and he's teaching them on the Sabbath. And then it says what they, what they experienced. They were astonished at his teaching, just, just like we saw in Nazareth, just where he was privately. They were astonished at his teaching because his message had 
authority. So Jesus' teaching, as we're starting to see, is not like anyone else's. And, and if you were in this common day, if you were back in Jesus' time, what would have typically happened in the synagogue is a, a rabbi would have got up and taught. He would have read a little bit of scripture, and then he would have taught. And the majority of his teaching would have been quoting other rabbis or previous rabbis or popular rabbis, and they would have quoted this person and this person and this person, and it would have been a whole bunch of quotes of different people to try to justify their teaching or clarify their teaching. But I want you to picture Jesus. So Jesus comes, and he starts teaching, and they're going like, what is up with this guy's teaching? It has an authority, meaning he doesn't have to quote someone else to be justified. He just speaks with an authority and a truth like no one else. And the same thing is kind of true today. I mean, we tend to see that when we look at the Gospels, we say, oh, the red letters, the red letters, that, those are the things that Jesus said. Well, yeah, those are the things he said when he was in the flesh here on earth. But remember, the word of God is, is God-breathed. First Corinthians, or excuse me, First Timothy 3.16 says, the, the scriptures are God-breathed. He spoke them. Every single one of these words, in a sense, is Jesus' words. And they have an authority like no other authority that we ever come across. Even people who didn't recognize him back in Nazareth, they recognized that he spoke with authority. Even people that don't believe in Jesus, they can look at the scriptures and they can see some of these truths and they can recognize this is unique to any other kind of teaching. See, very few people, if even not even unbelievers, will doubt that Jesus was a great teacher. They don't believe he's God necessarily, but they recognize that no other teachings have influenced our world more than Jesus. In fact, the Bible, the Bible every single year and over the histories of the years has been the number one best-selling book all the time. It's got over five billion copies sold. There's not even another book that's hit a billion. So it wasn't just true then, it's still true today. Jesus' words have an authority and a truth that have left such an indelible mark on history that nothing else compares. And here's what I think is so fascinating about it. We tend to think, if you're going to have influence today, man, you've got to have a platform, so you've got to be a great political leader, or you've got to be a powerful, rich businessman, or maybe if you're a phenomenal athlete, that gives you a, a platform to leave something, or if you're a, a phenomenal musician and a Hollywood star, whatever it is, those are the things, those are the places that people think will leave an indelible mark. Guess what? Jesus was none of those. He never had a place of power or influence in terms of a worldly sense when he walked this earth. And yet, no person, arguably, I don't know that you could argue anyone else. In fact, most people, we don't even remember their names after 100 years, much less 2,000. These people got to experience that firsthand. Imagine God in the flesh. Every word he spoke out was living truth. It wasn't that he spoke the truth. He is the truth. See, with us humans, like we speak the truth sometimes and then sometimes we don't. Jesus couldn't do anything else but speak truth. 
because he defines the truth. I love Hebrews 4 for that reason. I think the author of Hebrews captures this concept that, that we're seeing starting to be expressed in this narrative story about Jesus, but he captures it in a way by, when he says in, in verse 12 of chapter 4, for the word of God is living and effective and sharper than any double-edged sword, penetrating as far as the separation of soul and spirits, joints and marrow. It is able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. No creature is hidden from him, but all things are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. That's what these people were experiencing. That's what Luke is recording. They said, there is something different about this man's teaching. I I can totally get what these people are saying. I've witnessed it personally, in my life, God's truth, his word, no other book. I've read hundreds of books, hundreds, maybe even in the thousands over all the years and schooling and different things like that. But there is not one book that I can go back to day after day after day that can read me like a book. They can just open me up that I can't finagle my way out of. It just makes me uncomfortable sometimes how much God knows my junk. And he knows yours too. I know you know what I'm talking about. You all know when you've sat under, I've sat under the good teaching of many different men that have influenced me significantly. And and when they're able to open up God's word and communicate it, it just is an experience like I've never experienced before. And I hear people say that all the time. Man, it felt like the preacher or the teacher that morning, like they've been reading my mail. They were speaking right to me. That's right. Because that is the authority of Jesus' word. And I'm so thankful that Austin Oaks is a church that highly values the simple exposition and teaching of God's word. Because guess what, guys? You really don't want my advice. You don't want to hear from me, much less Brandon, every Sunday. Just because he's a little younger. You want to hear from God himself. And so I appreciate that that's a value of this church, that Brandon values that, that we value that, that that's important because that's the only authority we really have. Second thing we're going to see is Jesus' power. So the story that, that Luke is writing, his narrative story continues, and it says, hang on, I lost my verse. Here we go. Uh, then he went down to, in, in the synagogue, it says in verse 33, there was a man with an unclean demon spirit who cried out with a loud voice, leave us alone. What do you have to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him and said, be silent and come out of him. And throwing him down before them, the demon came out of him without hurting him at all. Amazement came over them and they all were saying to one another, what is this message? For he commands the unclean spirits with authority and power, and they come out. And news about him began to go out to every place in the vicinity. And after he left the synagogue, he entered Simon's house. Simon's mother-in-law was suffering from a high fever, and they asked him to Uh, asked him about her. So he stood over her and rebuked the fever and it left her. She got up immediately and began to serve him. When uh, when the sun was setting, all those who had anyone sick with various diseases brought them to him. 
As he laid his hands on each one of them, he healed them. Also demons were coming out of many, shouting and saying, You are the Son of God. But he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak because he knew, because they knew he was the Christ. See, up to this point in the gospel, Luke has just been talking about the person of Christ, as we mentioned already. But now Luke is beginning to reveal something new about Jesus. He's, he's revealing his authority, as we've seen, but he's revealing his power as well. And his power is not just a typical earthly power. Jesus has power to command the natural and the supernatural. That's what we're seeing in this. It's not just the natural things. It's not just sicknesses and diseases. We're going to see other natural miracles that he does. Jesus doesn't just have some command over what's natural. He has command and authority even over the supernatural, even over things that are unseen in the spirit world and all these things we see in here. He can command them as much as he commands sicknesses. And he didn't just do this in one little isolated incident here in a synagogue or in Simon's mother-in-law's house. We see those very personal instances, but then he did it with many, many people. And this was a thing that happened very regularly in his ministry in Capernaum. And everyone was talking about it. Everyone knew about it. And here's, I think, one of the things, even these little statements where Luke writes, you know, and everyone was hearing about this within the vicinity. See, if you're writing a historical account and you want it to be accepted, you're going to want to have live testimony of these things that are happening. And, and the gospel writers were alive during the lives of many of these people that witnessed these events. And so they could have easily gone to these towns, and Luke would have done that, and researched it, and found out, did this really happen? And if it was some kind of a crazy conspiracy theory or a goofy, you know, religious guru thing, there would have been so many people that would have been denying it, said, no, I was there, I was in the synagogue, I was in the city, none of that stuff was happening. And the Bible would have basically just drifted off like every other goofy conspiracy theory does, when people go, no, there wasn't that really anyone that was witnessing, this is just a small group of people. But it didn't. In fact, it thrived. And the more witnesses, the more people that know it, the more difficult it would be to pull the wool over someone's eyes and have a book and these letters go on without people just saying, there's no way that happened. There's too many people that were there, and that's not what happened. But that's not the case. Everywhere Luke went, he bumped into people that were eyewitnesses of these events. So why would Luke include this? a great question. I think in spite of our Western culture that tends to believe that there's a natural cause and a scientific explanation for everything, the truth is the majority of cultures in the world, even today and throughout time, have believed that there's a natural world and a supernatural world. That's just the case. I mean, throughout history it's been that way. Even today, our Western culture might think that everything's explained scientifically or has a natural cause, but the majority of the cultures in the world don't believe that. You go to Africa, that's not their worldview. You go to Latin America, that's certainly not their worldview. You go to even Asia, that's not their worldview. Most cultures even today believe this. And I think it's a little bit of uh, cultural arrogance maybe on our Westerners' viewpoints, it can sometimes say, hey, everything can be explained by a natural scientific explanation. My background is science. 
Like that's what my, all my background, most of my education was in science for an undergraduate and master's degree. I'm not anti-science. I think science has brought us some of the greatest discoveries and helped us in phenomenal ways. And some of the greatest scientists were people who believed in God. But science has a limited perspective within the, the barriers and it's designed to measure. When it says something has to be repeatable to be measurable and, and authenticated, that's great for scientific experiments, but there's many things in life that can't be experimentally repeated. For example, how do you, what experiment do you do to prove that George Washington was our first president? There isn't one. But would all of you deny that he was just because you can't prove it scientifically? Here's another one. Give me a science experiment that proves how much I love my wife and my family. Show me one. Because I can give you a whole lot of proof that's not scientific, but you can't, there's lots of things. So science is great, but it's arrogant to think that it can measure everything. It's not designed to measure something that's supernatural. Therefore, use it within its boundaries, but outside that, it's not effective. So Jesus comes on the scene, and to most cultures, I think even ours that would believe in this, Jesus comes on and we realize he is powerful over both the natural and the supernatural. There's nothing that falls outside his realm. The cosmic evil in our world and the spiritual powers behind those forces of evil, they will not win the ultimate final battle. And knowing there's someone powerful over that is very important. First John 3, 8, excuse me, says this about Jesus' purpose, or, or one of the reasons he came was, the Son of God was revealed for this purpose, to destroy the devil's works. Jesus has that power over the supernatural. And even if you've never been personally, say, possessed by a demon, it's a rare occasion, uh, the truth is the whole world is under the influence of Satan and his demonic powers. The scriptures tell us that. That's true of anyone and us as well when we're apart from Christ. Listen to what Paul says in Ephesians when he wrote about all of us in the world in general. He says in verse 1 of chapter 2, And you, meaning us, were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you previously lived according to the ways of this world and according to the ruler of the power of the air. That's a, a name for Satan. And the spirit now working in the disobedient. He said, we too all previously lived among them in our fleshly desires, carrying out the inclinations of our flesh and thoughts. And we were by nature children under wrath as the others were also. So whether we've ever experienced demon possession or not, the fact is, if we're apart from Christ, if we're apart from his authority, you and I don't have the power to overcome the forces of darkness. We just slide right along with them. And our world system and all of us apart from Christ do the same. Sickness and disease that's plagued our world, stung our own lives, stolen loved ones from us too fast, is cast out in a single word by Jesus. This is his power, supernatural and natural. 
And here's, here's something that just hit me in reading this passage and, and thinking about it. It really, in, in a secondary way, confronts one of the most common objections to Christianity and the biblical God. It, it goes up against one of the common uh, arguments against Christianity's God, that there's an all-powerful God and he's good. And here's how the argument often goes. If there's suffering in the world, and everyone knows there is, there's suffering in the world, then you can't have an all-powerful and a perfectly good God. That's what secular arguments would say. That, that eliminates that from being possible. And here's the, the argument. It comes in one of two shapes. It says, if God is all-powerful, then he must not be all-good if suffering exists, because he would eliminate it if he really was good. That's one of the arguments. The other one flips it around. Okay, God could be good, maybe there is a good God, but if he's all-powerful, or if he's good, then he can't be all-powerful because suffering exists, and it means he can't control that, he can't get rid of it. So those are the two most common arguments that are brought up to say there can't be an all-powerful good God. And here Jesus, in this one incident, knocks down both of them. He demonstrates that he's all-powerful over these things. He commands the supernatural world, and he commands the natural world. As well, he shows that he is good. Because in each case, he does what's good, what's better for the people involved in their situations. He heals those with sicknesses and brings them to a better state, and he casts out the evil of the demons from a man and leaves that man in a better state. Jesus proves that God is good and all-powerful, and maybe, maybe the Bible has a much more nuanced and complex view of our world than some of these secular arguments against it. I mean, maybe we just don't have a big enough concept of the world to think of how you can have a good God and an all-powerful God and suffering exist as well. But yet the Bible is a narrative that puts this, in this cosmic narrative, it includes suffering in this season. There's a reason for it because of our brokenness and our rebellion and our sin is what brought that in. But what Jesus teaches us here in starting to reveal his kingdom is that there is a time coming when all of that will be confronted and eliminated. And he's showing himself as sufficient to do just that when it happens. Jesus has all power to command the supernatural and the natural. The last thing I want you to see is captured in these last couple verses of this passage, but it's extremely important. It says, when it was day, the next day, he went out and made his way to a deserted place, but the crowds were searching for him, and they came to him and tried to keep him from leaving them. But he said to them, it is necessary for me, and many of your translations will say, I must, I must, it's this urgency that Luke is trying to communicate. It is necessary, I must proclaim the good news about the kingdom of God to the other towns also, because I was sent for this purpose. And the text says that's exactly what he did. Jesus' purpose was to proclaim his kingdom to all peoples. Now we tend to just read over those things uh, in our modern day and not give much thought to it, but I want you to just pause on that for a moment. What if Jesus had given in to the desires of these people? 
Certainly they weren't being evil in and of themselves, saying, no, Jesus, we want your presence here. We want your healing here. We want your power here. It was bringing good things to their town. And if Jesus would have said, all right, I, I appreciate it. You know, you guys have welcomed me. I go to these other towns and they throw me out. They want to toss me off a cliff. You know, that's not that exciting. I'll just hang out here. I could have a great ministry right here. But he didn't. He said it was necessary for him to proclaim his kingdom beyond that. It's a lot like the message he left with his disciples. When he was getting ready to leave, he said, all authority has been given to me. And he says, now you go and make disciples of all peoples. Think about it. If Jesus had stayed there, if these people had got their wishes and got to hoard Jesus and his healing and his presence right there, no one else would have heard about him. In fact, if he would have just stayed right there and not even told his disciples, guess what? This is where it really hits home. You and I, Gentiles, a long way from Jerusalem, would never have heard this message. You and I would not be here today. We would not have the blessing and the beauty of knowing that Jesus has power over sin, over death, over sickness, over the dark forces of this world, and we would be destined to an eternity that evil and brokenness would reign in. But he doesn't. Jesus goes in spite of the people's wishes for you and for me. The disciples went. They took the message beyond there. And I leave you with this thought. That if this is Jesus, if he has this power and he has this authority and he has this purpose, then how can we hoard it to ourselves? How can we just say, hey, as long as we got it, we're good. My family's, we're good. How can we hoard something that's been such a huge impact and has changed our lives for eternity? I think these words could be adopted by each of us in a simple way. It may not be across the world, but it may be, it's necessary. I must walk across the street and talk to my neighbor. I, it's necessary that I walk across my office, my work office space, and, and, and meet with that person in their cubicle to share the gospel. I must traverse the gym where I work out on a regular basis and, and see the same guy that I talk with every week or this gal that I hang out with periodically and tell them about Jesus. And let me tell you, it will not be your words that convince them. Share the truth of Jesus. It has the same authority and same power that it had when he first came on the scene. It's necessary that Austin Oaks takes the gospel into its community, into your neighborhoods, into your workplaces, your schools, your hobbies, whatever it is, so that others might know the power and authority of Jesus Christ to free them 
from sickness and the evil of darkness that will be present in their life for all of eternity if they never hear otherwise. I want to encourage you uh, to grab this little sheet of paper that's on your chair near you. Pastor Brandon's going to talk about this more uh, later on. But I want to begin with something right now with you. As you know, uh, March 21st, you'll hear more of this, we have a celebration Sunday that we're going to be doing here with baptisms and other celebratory things, and it's going to be really catered to sharing the, good, the word of God and the, the message of the gospel with new people coming in. And on that sheet, what we'd like you to do, and you can, you're going to have a moment here to think as we prepare to celebrate communion in just a minute, but I want to put this in your head and even start working on it right now. Who is a person that God is putting on your heart to share the gospel with or to begin that journey of inviting them or talking to them about the person of Jesus? Who is someone that you could invite to that March 21st service? Wherever it is, whether it's in your home watching online and you prepare breakfast for them that morning or outside in the courtyard or here in the sanctuary, who is someone that God is saying, you must walk across, you must go and preach the kingdom of Jesus with this person? And write their name on there and later on we're gonna pray and and talk a little bit more about that as we celebrate together. Jesus has all authority, he has all power, and he has a purpose to use that authority and power for the good of all peoples. And we're part of that. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for these truths. Jesus, thank you that Your words are living and active even 2,000 years after you spoke them yourself. Lord, my life is testimony of that. You know when you came into my life, my life was an absolute mess, spiraling downward. And you spoke truth into my heart. You showed me something that I'd never seen before and gave me purpose, gave me hope. You gave me reason to live in so many different ways. And Lord, I know that's true of so many here today. So Lord, let us live in light of these truths, that it's not our authority, it's not our power that changes and transforms. It's yours, Lord Jesus. You have the power to conquer sickness, and the ultimate end of sickness is death. All of us are going to be sick unto death in this body. But Lord, that's not the end. You revealed even in these little scenes here that you have authority over all those things. And so I know, Lord, when I hit the grave, I'm not afraid as I get older. And I'm getting older. My body's not acting the way it used to act. And that can be discouraging if I didn't know (laughs) that this isn't my final home. But whether I'm buried for one minute or a thousand years, the moment you speak, (laughs) I'm running out of that grave under your power and your authority. We praise you, Jesus. 
for who you are and what you're capable of doing. And we worship you because of it. Amen.